Well, good Lord's Day, Theresa Church family. Um, this is an interesting Sunday for us, perhaps a first in our church family history. But nonetheless, we will share in the Word together. So before we do that, I'm going to pray and ask that God would bless us as we consider His Word together. So let's pray. Lord, it's, it's a good thing to open Your Word. It's a good thing to hear the truth of Your Word. And God, as we open it together this morning, uh, Lord, some of us now, some will open it in just a few moments, some will open it in a few hours, some perhaps another day. Lord, as we open the word as a church family, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and dwell with us. Lord, this is a, an interesting time, it's an unprecedented time in many ways. Lord, we confess that we find ourselves anxious and fearful, but we know that you are not. We know that you are faithful, that you are steady, that you are with us, and that you are faithful to speak to us through your word. And so, God, we confidently humble ourselves before your word this day. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now and open it to our hearts and our minds, help us to see wonderful things. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, either with you there or uh, here in the room, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. As I mentioned, uh, the last two weeks we've been in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to kind of back out of the story and look at eight characteristics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We'll return to Mark chapter 6 in just a few weeks, but over these next two weeks, we're going to look at eight characteristics that come out of Mark's gospel story. And before, I, before we get into that, I want to, I want to tell you a story about, about myself. Uh, I went to seminary uh, several years ago. Uh, I was not feeling called to ministry at the time, and, and yet God was faithful and gracious to me and, and, and called me. Uh, to go to seminary and started with college, and so I started at the college at Southeastern, and I uh, started a bit later than 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 usual time, but nonetheless went through college. And when I finished college, I, I graduated. I had my degree in biblical studies, and I thought, "Yeah, I'm I'm well equipped. I know what I need to know, and I'm good to go." And then I got into working in a church and got started on my master's degree, and realized I really don't know anything. There's more I need to know. And so uh, I started working on my, my graduate degree and continued to work in church and, and develop as a pastor. And then it came to the end of my graduate studies, and I thought, well, now, now I'm complete. Now I, now I know what I need to know. Now I'm a pastor. And quickly I realized, oh, there's, there's more that I need to know. There's more that I need to grow in. There's more that, I'm, that I lack that I was unaware of. Well, I went, I went back to seminary for a third time, and, and after I graduated the third time, I remember looking around and thinking, I don't know anything. So what had happened in my life is that I realized that in ignorance beforehand, I thought that I was fully equipped coming out of seminary the first and second time. I thought that I had arrived at what it meant to be a, a pastor. And then by God's grace, he reminded me, that I will always grow as a Christian, that I will always be growing as a pastor, that on this side of heaven, I will never finish growing. 
You heard, if you were with us for our revival last week, Pastor Gerald talk about his arrival to Westwood and how he thought he was ready. And he learned that he still had much room to grow. And so it's important, I tell you that story to emphasize that discipleship is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's not like a t-shirt that we simply put on and thus we have it on. Discipleship, biblically, is more like aging, where babies are simply learning to eat, while parents are making grocery lists, paying the mortgage, watching over the 401k, which right now is suffering if you're watching over yours. Parents are driving the car, paying for the car. They're doing the housework. They're planning for retirement. They're doing this, that, and the other. That's what discipleship is like. You've got some people that are just trying to learn to eat, and you've got other people who are managing more than that baby could ever comprehend. Discipleship is a process of maturity. And so if you're looking at your notes there, whether you have them or not, the main idea this morning that I want us to see is that the Word of God gives us a clear picture and a description of the Christian disciple. Tells us how we are to be and how we are to live as we walk with Jesus Christ. When Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, we find what may be the clearest definition of discipleship in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we read these words. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so we need to ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does that word mean? Well, if you remember back, way back to August when we started our study in the Gospel of Mark, we defined disciple as a learner. Now, disciples aren't, any disciple doesn't mean they're a Christian. The word isn't necessarily attached to the Christian faith. You can be a disciple of almost anything because it means we are learning. We are learning after something. But to be a Christian disciple means that we are being learners of Jesus Christ. He is the subject. He is the content. He is the teacher of what we are learning. It means that we are learning Jesus' way of living. We are learning Jesus' view of God and, and his view of the world. And we are taking all of these things that we are learning from Jesus and we are making them our own. But pay attention to the language. A learner. It implies an ongoing activity, an active lifestyle. As in, I will never stop being a learner of Jesus. Or I am always growing to be more and more like Jesus. And so whereas I came out of seminary once or twice thinking I was complete as a pastor, as a, as a disciple, what I have since come to understand by God's grace is that that was just one step along the path of growth. 
So as I said, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at eight characteristics of the Christian disciple that come out of Mark's story, Mark's gospel story. We're going to do what, what I'm calling a survey sermon. We're going to look at the text from all over the gospel story and ask, what is Mark telling us? But just to be clear, there is more that could be said. This is not an exhaustive list of what a Christian disciple is. It's not a comprehensive list. These are just eight things that we can identify from the gospel of Mark. Well, again, you may recall from my very first sermon on the gospel of Mark, I gave you a definition of discipleship. And here is the quote. Discipling is inviting someone to imitate you. It means making your trust in Christ an example to be followed. It requires you to be willing to be watched. And then folding someone into your life so that they actually do watch. Well, understanding who we are called to be as disciples is helpful as we consider inviting someone into our lives to watch us love and follow Jesus. Perhaps for you here this morning or watching via video, the thought of telling someone, hey, come and learn to follow Jesus by watching my life might seem intimidating. Or maybe you're, you're, you have the desire, yeah, I want to do that, but I don't know what I would teach them. Well, I hope over the next two weeks as we look at these eight characteristics that it will be helpful because as we consider who we are called to be as disciples, it's helpful as we learn to show what we are called to do. We need to ask this question. What are we inviting them to see and to learn? So do this right now. Think about somebody in your life, another Christian that you want to help grow in Christ-likeness. And think about inviting them into your life right now. They have almost full and free access to your life, day in and day out. And then evaluate your life. Don't change, don't, don't change anything you would normally do. Just think about how you typically go about your life. And then if you invited someone to watch you, what would someone learn to value and love based on how you live? If you think about that, how do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How do you go about your family life? What are the, the hobbies that you do? You see, we value, we, we, we give ourselves to the things that we value. And so right now, if you invited someone to come into your life, would they come away with the understanding that Christ is central to all that we do? Well, that's the goal of the Christian disciple. That's what discipleship is. It's teaching someone to learn Christ as the center of all things. And so this morning, we're going to look at four of the eight characteristics. Well, the first thing we see, and this comes right from the, 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 the scripture that we just read, Mark chapter 8. The first thing we see is that the Christian disciple surrenders to the will of God. A Christian disciple surrenders to God's will. And this really is the foundational characteristic when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. If I'm not surrendering myself to God fully, then the other things won't come. I'll, there'll be this competition between my will and God's will. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 6 where he says we can't serve two masters. We'll end up hating one and, and despising the other. We'll only be faithful to one. And so the Christian disciple must surrender fully to God's 
will. We see Mark develop this in a number of ways. It comes out in in following Jesus Christ. And you see there on your notes, I've listed all the places in Mark's gospel where following Christ comes up. This comes out in surrendering to God specifically. We see that there. I've given you a number of texts to look at that. We also see surrender to God's will comes out as we do the will of God. Jesus talks about this in, in, in Mark chapter 3 when he's being asked about his family. If you remember, he's inside the house teaching and someone comes to him and says, Jesus, your family is outside and they want you. And Jesus says, well, who are my mothers and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. And so here's some things we can note about being in surrender to God's will or living surrendered to God's will. First, discipleship is more than listening. It's more than just listening. Now, listening is important. It's, 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 it's crucially important to hear the word of God, but it's more than that. It's knowing and doing the word. James talks about this in his short letter when he says, do not be deceived being hearers of the word only. He said, if that's all we do, if all we do is hear the word taught or hear it spoken or hear somebody else talk about the word of God, if that's all we're doing, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. He says, rather, we're to be hearers and doers. We are first to know God. We can't rightly do the word of God without first knowing God. And so it starts with listening. It starts with with knowing. And so we might ask the question, how do we come to know God? Well, it begins as God comes to know us. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about we're dead in our trespasses and sins until God makes us alive together with Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, he says, now that I have come to know God, or rather that God has come to know me. And so it begins when God comes to us, but ways in which we know God is that we know him through his word. We know him through prayer. We come to know him through the fellowship of the saints. And you see, God intends that we know him in relationship. I think sometimes we struggle with thinking about God as this this idea or this, this thing that exists away from us it doesn't really affect our lives day to day but God intends that he knows his people in a relationship that he relates to us personally and this is this is an essential Christian doctrine because God himself is a personal God and the Bible tells us that over and over and over and we don't have time to develop that fully but that's essential to understand that God intends that we know him in relationship. But knowing God gives way to doing the word. That as I, as I know God through his word, as I know God through prayer, as I know God through living in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, in, in relationship with God, I will begin by his grace to do the word. I'll begin to be obedient. And you see, this begins not with great acts of mission, Although those are good things, it doesn't begin with me being a, a, a disciple on fire in the world. Doing the word begins with heart transformation. It begins by being transformed here. Paul talks about in Romans 12, by the, being renewed by the renewal of my mind, being transformed by the renewal of my mind. 
And so it begins with hard transformation and doing the word happens daily in our lives. There are the big categories of doing the word, which is preaching to crowds and going on mission trips and doing this, that, and the other, doing large mission projects. Those are all things that would fall under doing the word. But we need to think about other things that fall under the category of doing the word, which for me personally means being a faithful husband and being a patient, kind, protective father, being a friend and a pastor, being a good employee. You see, doing the word begins in our daily lives. For you, it's whatever, whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Some of you are husbands and wives. Some of you are children. Some of you are, are siblings. Some of you are, are, are employees. And doing the word begins here. If I'm gonna live and surrender to God's will, it means that I will begin with my own heart. And so surrendering to God means that we come to reflect him more and more in our lives. It begins to reflect in how we think and and how we talk and how we respond, how we listen. Surrendering to God's will will come out in how we fail. It'll come out in how we deal with sickness. Surrendering to God and everything comes out in how we celebrate success and it will come out in how we approach death and how we die. You see, surrendering to God's will affects how we deal with this coronavirus. I'm gonna share a pastoral letter with you in just a few moments where I'll share some of my thoughts, but suffice it to say here that surrendering to God's will in the midst of this crisis means that we don't fall apart. It means that we're not given over to chaos and an uncontrollable anxiety because we know that our God is faithfully in control. And that affects how we think, how we talk, how we respond. We see as disciples of Christ, we are on a journey to become more and more like Jesus. In the front of my Bible, I keep a number of quotes. And one of those quotes says, the Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. A Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. You see, as I said earlier, discipleship's not like a t-shirt where we just put it on and it's on. Discipleship is like growth. It's like the growth of a baby to an adult. And as disciples, we are on a journey where we are always learning, always growing in Christ likeness. As I said last week, being a Christian disciple or a learner of Jesus means that we have to unlearn the world along the way. It means that we have to unlearn wrong thoughts about God that may be in our minds. For some of us, it may mean that we unlearn wrong things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church member, We see Jesus doing that with his disciples. They had to unlearn some of their false beliefs about the Messiah. You see, they they had no idea that Jesus was going to conquer through death. Their idea was that Jesus was going to conquer by being this military hero that was going to ride in and overthrow Rome. And that was so set in their mind that for a time, they couldn't understand that Jesus would die and triumph. And so they had to unlearn that so that they could relearn the truth. But there's two two movements here. 
We're either growing towards Christ or moving away from Christ. And when we move away from God, we become depersonalized. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, when we move away from God, we become alienated from God or removed from God or distanced from God. And when we remove ourselves from God, when we remove ourselves from his word and from prayer and from the fellowship and, 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 and protection of the saints, when we take ourselves away from that, we are actually bringing harm to what it means to be persons. We are all individuals. We all have a humanity. And God has not only given us that, so he owns it, but he's told us about it, how it functions. And when I move away from God, I'm not getting freer of him. I'm actually finding myself more and more in bondage. You see, it affects our humanity. Alienation from God, as I said, does not bring freedom. When I say, well, God says I can't do this, so if I just ignore God and move away from God, I can do it. That's not how it works, even though our minds are tempted to think that way. Moving away from God does not bring freedom. It does not bring flourishing. It actually brings bondage and decay. It's like... A guy who thinks, well, if I just move away from what God says and do all that I want to do over here, life will go well for me. If you know the story of the prodigal son, you know that he quickly comes to his senses as his face is in a pig trough. Because he had moved away from the truth of God. You see, sin, which is as we move away from God, as we alienate ourselves from God, as we neglect God through his word and through prayer and through genuine biblical fellowship, that's not just bad, it's wrong, it's sinful. Hebrews 10 tells us not to neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. And when we move away in that sinful pattern, we are inviting decay into our lives. No one who has walked away from the things of God, no one who has kept themselves from the truth of God's word, no one who has quit praying, no one who has stopped attending their local fellowship of the saints, that person does not find themselves in a place where they say, I am, I'm a more wholesome person. We might present ourselves that way. We might like to think that that's the case. But because we know what God says, we know that anytime we are alienated from God, we actually are depersonalized. It actually begins to rot and decay what it means to be human because we entertain sin. And so, contrary to being alienated from God, surrendering to God is the first step towards being whole. As I move away from God, I'm being depersonalized. But as I move towards God, as I surrender to God, I am being made whole again. I found a quote that I really like this week. It says, Christians are people becoming whole again. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created perfect. They were created whole. They needed nothing. They lacked nothing. And then in chapter 3, which is perhaps one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, sin comes in and just ruins everything. It affects even their humanity because it says they were naked and ashamed. In chapter 2, when, when chapter 2 of Genesis closes, they are naked and unashamed. And yet in chapter 3, they become aware of their nakedness and they are ashamed. They are no longer whole. 
And so from Genesis chapter three, verse 15, which I don't have time to go into that, but it's the first proclamation of the gospel from God himself. The rest of the Bible is about God making his people whole again. Sin ruins us as creatures and God restores us through the power of the gospel. And so Christians are people becoming whole again. Christ restores us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But remember, that word becoming, it means movement. It means process. It means not yet finished. Christian discipleship is growth in Christ likeness. You see on your notes there, the goal of Christian discipleship, we can say from Mark chapter 8, is the surrender of a self-generated, self-determined life. If we ask, well, what am I trying to help other Christians do? What's the goal of me investing in another person? One of the primary goals is helping them give up this self-determined way of life. One thing we're trying to do is to help them unlearn the world and relearn Christ. And so here's some application questions about surrendering to God's will. To what extent am I surrendering to God's will? We all need to ask ourselves that question. Based on the things that I've said and more importantly, the the truths that come out of Mark's gospel, we need to ask ourselves, to what extent am I surrendering to God's will? We can ask ourselves, how am I teaching others to surrender to God's will? You see, if I'm not surrendering to God's will, I'm certainly not teaching others. The third question, who is surrendering to God more because of my example? See, we don't don't make people surrender to God, but God uses us. Just as God relates to us inside of relationships, we relate to each other inside of relationships, which is the bedrock foundation of the church. Who, by observing my life, is learning to surrender to God more and more and more? Let's look at a second characteristic of discipleship that we see in Mark's gospel, and that is faith in God. We see this slip over to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 and verse 22, we read these words. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It says also in verse 31 of Mark chapter 11, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? So you see, faith in God involves a few different things. It involves believing. We see this in a number of texts throughout Mark's gospel, and you see them there listed on your notes. It also means having faith, which is the text that I just read. If I'm to have faith in God, primarily what that means is that I am conforming to God's purposes. It means that I am putting the weight of my trust on his will and that as I am putting the weight of my trust on him, I'm at the same time turning away from my rebellious self-centeredness. 
You see, if, if I'm valuing what I think is important most, if that's what's primary in my thinking, that I'm not gonna be surrendering to God. I'm actually gonna be moving away from God, becoming more and more alienated from God, and therefore my faith is going to suffer. And so here's a very practical reality in the Christian life. If I'm not reading my Bible, if I'm not praying, if I am not thinking about Scripture, if in fact I am trusting in myself more, then I should not expect to hear from God. Sometimes we wonder, why is God not speaking to me? Sometimes we wonder, why can I not feel God's closeness? Sometimes the answer is that we have walked away from him into sin. Whereas genuine faith means that I'm conforming to him, that I am putting my trust in him, that I am putting away my self-centeredness. It means that I'm consciously entrusting myself to Jesus in the midst of doubt and unbelief. Think about Mark chapter 9, verse 24, where we read these words. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, in this particular story, the father's child was in danger and he brought him to Jesus. And the father is expressing something that we often struggle with, belief and doubt. Sometimes we wonder, does my doubt mean that I'm not really believing? Does my doubt mean somehow I'm not a Christian? You see, faith leads us to consciously entrust ourselves to Jesus, even in the midst of doubt and unbelief. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says that while we suffer, while we suffer, we are to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good. So it doesn't mean that the suffering goes away. Peter says that the suffering is there actually by the hand of God, but he says in the midst of it, we are to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good, to obey, to follow God, to entrust ourselves to God. Well, Mark chapter nine, this story where, where the father says, I believe, help my unbelief, it gives us some insight into the relationship between genuine faith and doubt, which is a huge, a huge struggle for so many people today. And so it's helpful to make a distinction between what I'm calling constructive doubt and deadly doubt. Constructive doubt I'm defining in this way. Constructive doubt is humble wrestling with the challenge of trusting Jesus wholeheartedly. Humble wrestling with the challenge of trusting Jesus wholeheartedly. This is something that's probably coming up in the minds of Christians all over the world right now. I believe in God, I trust in God, but I'm also worried about this virus. I'm worried about how it's gonna affect the economy. I'm worried if I'm not gonna be able to get food or not. I'm worried if I'll be able to get toilet paper or not. I'm worried about this, that, and the other, and yet I believe that God is faithful. These things live together in our lives sometimes. And they don't contradict one another. We see that in Mark 9 where the father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that prayer often. 
Because you see, as I am on that long road of obedience, as I am in that process of growing more and more like Jesus, I am almost always at the same time trusting in God and wrestling with something in my life. And so constructive doubt means humble wrestling with the challenge of trusting Jesus wholeheartedly. Well, the second type of doubt is deadly doubt. And deadly doubt I'm defining in this way. Persistence in a skeptical posture toward God. Persistence in a skeptical posture toward God. The vast majority of people within the church struggle with constructive doubt. I believe, I want to believe, I want to trust, I'm having trouble. And if that's you today, I want you to hear from the Bible that it's okay to wrestle with those kinds of doubts. The deadly doubt is when we take a posture towards God that says, no matter what you're saying, I'm rejecting it. Deadly doubt is saying, yes, I see that the word of God says this, but I'm not going to do it. It's infringing on my self-will. Therefore, I'm not submitting to God's word. We see Jesus struggling with this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before he goes to the cross in Mark chapter 4, 32 through 36, flip there if you have your Bible. I think it's more important to read it. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That probably could be said of most of us right now. With this crisis going on in our country, with all the different facets that it's, that it's causing, we are a people greatly distressed and troubled. And here is Jesus, the, the eternal Son of God, creator of all things. Colossians tells us that he literally holds all things together. And here he is, being greatly distressed and troubled. Gives a new meaning, perhaps, or a fresh meaning to Hebrews 4 when we read Jesus is our great high priest who is able to understand our sufferings in every way. So if you find yourself this morning or whenever you're watching or hearing this, if you're finding yourself distressed and troubled because of what's going on in our world, remember that Jesus knows what that's like. Verse 34, it says, He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther... He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, not what I will, but what you will. I said a few moments ago that it's faith is consciously entrusting ourselves to God in the midst of doubt. Jesus knew what lay before him. And here he prays, if there be any other way. And yet he entrusts himself to God, but not what I will, what you will. So here's some questions we can ask of ourselves about faith. Based on these things, to what extent am I trusting in God? To what extent am I teaching others to trust in God? Or how am I teaching others to perhaps doubt God. You see, our actions speak sometimes louder than words, the old saying says. 
We are either always teaching people to love and trust God or we are teaching people to flee from God and to doubt God. When Christians, if we are to respond in panic and chaos and woe is me and the world is coming to an end, if that's our response to this crisis, we are teaching people to doubt God. You see, Mark leads us to see that true faith in Christ leads us to deal with the idols of the heart. As I grow in faith in God, as I trust in him more and more consciously, even as I deal with with constructive doubt in that process, I'm dealing with idols of my heart. I'm learning not to trust in myself as I trust in God more and more. But also alongside of that, Mark's leading us to see that having faith in God means being restored to right worship. It means being restored to right relationship with him. Faith in God is the second aspect of Christian discipleship that we see. Well, the third thing I want us to see from chapter 11, verse 25, is that the Christian disciple is a man or woman of prayer. A man or woman of prayer. And we just read this text a few moments ago that that when things are going well, when things are going poorly, when things are going however, we are to pray. We are to be people of prayer. Prayer, here's my definition, means learning to agree with, learning to conform to, and learning to surrender to God's purposes. Learning to pray means putting my desires and my will under God's desires and his will. This should sound somewhat familiar if you were here during our Sermon on the Mount study. As Jesus teaches us to pray, we call it the Lord's Prayer. While Jesus doesn't teach us to recite those words verbatim, he does teach us how to pray, which is we start with the great glory of God. God is in heaven. God is reverenced. God is not of this world. God is holy and set apart. He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship. We learn to pray that God's glory and his mission in the world be completed. And then finally, at the end, Jesus says, now we can pray for the daily things. After we remember who God is, after we remember what God is doing in the world, after we remember what God has called us to do in the world, we are then rightly reminded, we are then in the right mindset to pray for what I need today. Because after I've refocused myself on God, then I can rightly remember, oh, and by the way, I need bread today. Give me this day my daily bread. Learning to pray means consciously putting my desires and my will under God's. It means that I'm being watchful. Prayer leads me to resist the temptation of relying on myself. There are so many of us today wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, especially right now in the midst of this crisis. What's going to happen tomorrow? What am I going to have to do? What kind of decisions am I going to have to make? But you see, prayer leads us to resist the temptation to to rely primarily on ourselves. It leads us to be primarily God-centered. Prayer leads us into joyful solitude with God. 
We're living in a society, we're living in a, a time in human history where solitude almost doesn't exist any longer. We have computers in our hands, on our wrists. We have access to the world almost constantly. And yet if I am going to pray faithfully, sometimes that means that I pull away from people and things and I'm alone with God. We see Jesus doing that over and over again. Prayer leads me into joyful solitude with God. Prayer leads me into worship. As I pray rightly, as I am reminded of who God is and what he's doing and the fact that it's going to succeed, as I am reminded of those things, prayer is naturally going to lead me to worship God. Even when I'm praying for something that's troubling me, even when I'm praying in grief, even when I'm praying maybe about my constructive doubt, that prayer is going to lead me to worship God. Well, right prayer is specifically tied to what we just talked about, faith in God, and also the first thing we talked about, being surrendered to God's will in all things. As I said a moment ago, we see Jesus praying often, which is, this is a natural communion with God, prayer. Prayer is foundational to our spiritual lives. It is foundational. You see, faith that moves mountains, which is what uh, the lesson from the fig tree is about in, in, in Mark chapter 11. Faith that moves mountains is faith that willingly conforms to God's mission. What Jesus is not teaching us here is that if I go outside and I walk up to a tree and I say, I believe that this tree will get up and walk away, that it will. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that if God wants to do something, God's going to do it. If God wants to move the tree, God can move the tree. The power of faith, the power of prayer is not in me, it's in God. And so when I begin to pray in line with the will of God, guess what I'm going to start seeing? I'm going to start seeing my prayers answered. But I'm also going to start seeing my prayers change. See, prayer is not primarily about us telling God how much we hurt and how much we're suffering and how much we worry. Now, we can do that, and God invites us to do that. But prayer is primarily about coming into agreement with God, about beginning to pray about God's mission in the world. Faith that moves mountains is faith that willingly conforms to God's mission, and prayer gets us there. So what have you been praying for in the midst of this virus and the crisis it's caused? How have you been praying? What we pray for often reveals who or what we're surrendered to. Some application questions to ask ourselves would be, do I pray? Do you pray? And not only do you pray, but what is the, what's the regular content of your prayers? What are you praying about? What are you praying for? Is it always, God, give me this or that, or God, I need this or that, or God, this is going wrong in my life? 
Or are you praying what I would think would more, be more biblical prayers of, of God, you are so great and glorious and God, you are triumphing in the world. God, you are sovereign even over a virus. God, you are working all things for my good and your glory. Third question would be, how am I teaching others to pray rightly and to pray often? How am I leading others to pray the will of God? You see, that's what Jesus was doing in Matthew 6 when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. He was teaching us to pray God's will. Well, the fourth and final thing that I want us to see this morning, the fourth characteristic of the disciple, is that the Christian disciple watches over their heart. They guard their heart. Flip to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus is talking about what actually defiles a person. Then he called the people to him and again said, Hear me, all of you, and understand... There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he goes on to say that it's not this religious behavior that makes you holy. The disciples and the Jews were concerned with as long as their outward religion was up to snuff that they were fine. As long as they avoided all the stuff that God said to avoid, as long as they stayed away from all the sinners, as long as they didn't do all the bad stuff, then they were fine. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You've got it wrong. It's not the world that defiles you. It's your heart. Because he goes on to say, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one is good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. That's why Paul calls our mouths, he says our mouths are an open grave. Because all of these things come forth from the natural sinful heart of man. And so the Christian disciple, understanding this, watches over his or her heart. We guard our hearts in Christ. We understand that we need to be purified before a holy God. You see, if I'm to keep my focus on Jesus, if I'm to be always surrendering to his will, I must keep a close watch on the condition of my heart. Mark challenges us to know God rightly and to know ourselves rightly. If you remember, again, back to the very first sermon I preached on the gospel of Mark, I said, we're going to be confronted with two questions. Those questions being, who is God and who am I? And if I am to know myself rightly, that means to know that I am prone to sin. It means that I am prone to wander away from God. I am prone to fall into self-reliance. That's my natural human response. That's my natural sinful response. Is that when I am faced with a crisis or with a struggle or with temptation, my natural response is not to go to God, it's to go to me. 
And so the Christian disciple, as they learn Jesus more and more, as we learn to follow Jesus more and more, as we are in surrender to his will more and more, as we are having faith in him more and more, as we are praying more and more, and we are faced with these temptations, we remember, I am not the answer. He is the answer. If I'm to watch over myself, it means that I have a a deep sense of my own sinfulness. A few weeks ago, I preached on uh, repentance, which is what Jesus commissioned the disciples in Mark 6, 6 through 13. He commissioned them to go out and to preach repentance. And I gave a list of, 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 of what repentance looks like. But one of those was having the sight of our sin. Not just agreeing that we have sin in our life, but, but seeing it. Pointing to it and saying, yes, that's, that's true of me and it's wrong. If I'm to watch over myself, it means that I have a deep sense of my own sinfulness. I have a deep sense of my need to be purified. And if we are not vigilant over ourselves, and this is, this is dangerous, if we are not vigilant to watch over ourselves, we will lead other people astray. If we are not watching over and guarding our own hearts against sin, we will lead other people into sin. We see this in, in Exodus chapter 32. God had set aside Aaron to be the high priest. Moses had gone up on the mountain for 40 days. And Aaron, because he wasn't guarding his heart, becomes complicit with the people in making a golden calf to worship. His sinfulness led others to fall away. And if we are not vigilant over our own hearts, we will mislead others. We see Jesus tempted in the, in the gospel of Mark, yet maintaining a pure heart. We see him tempted right off the bat in Mark chapter 1 in the wilderness with Satan. We see him tempted in the garden to pray that he not go to the cross, and yet he says, not my will, but your will, God. And so again and again throughout Mark's gospel, we are taught to guard our hearts against sin. We need to ask these questions of ourselves. To what extent am I guarding my heart? To what extent am I watching over my heart? See, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, we're told, guard one another. See, it's a community activity. It's for the church. The writer in Hebrews says, guard one another, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Guard one another so that there is not within you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then he attaches this phrase, leading you to fall away. You see, the Bible is very honest about what sin does to our hearts. And it's terrifying. And so we need to ask the question, to what extent am I watching over my heart? How am I teaching others to guard their own hearts against sin? Am I leading others in confession and repentance? Am I doing that with my own confession and repentance first? And then here's a question. Right out of Hebrews 3. Who is watching your heart with you? Who is watching over your heart with you? Who knows when you fall? 
You see, in Galatians 6, Paul tells us to restore one another when we fall into sin. Who knows when you fall so that they can come after you in gospel protection and see you restored? See, Jesus clearly leads his disciples to watch over and guard their hearts against sin. All attitudes and actions arise out of the core of a person, he says in in chapter 7. He says, what defiles us comes from within. It reveals the core of who we are. You see, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus confronts the disciples in their self-sufficiency. Chapter 8, verse 17. It says, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? See, there's irony in Mark's gospel because what's just happened is if you look in your Bible, directly above that, it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So having been with Jesus as he provides for the multitude out of almost nothing, he feeds these thousands and thousands of people with with barely no food at all, the disciples just a few moments later are saying, where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? And Jesus is saying, why is it that you men who have just seen me provide for these thousands, how is it that you can actually have a discussion about food? And Jesus, I feel like he does that with us all the time. How is it that you could see the sight of God's glory? How is it that you can look at the Bible and see that God provides and God sustains and God leads? How is it that you can see all of that and yet have these conversations about sin and doubt and falling away? Jesus confronts us in our self-sufficiency. Because the disciples in that moment, they were asking, well, how how are we gonna provide this bread for us? And Jesus is saying, you have missed the point. You see, they fail to see who they truly are. We struggle with that. We struggle to really understand who we really are apart from Jesus. Jesus teaches them that they are to watch after and guard themselves against the defilements of sin. To watch after and guard themselves against the doubt of sin. In Mark chapter 7, going back to that list of what defiles a person, as these defilements are reversed through the gospel work, and they are reversed... Verse 21 of chapter 7 says, Out of the heart of man come wickedness. Through the gospel we become whole. It says, Out of the heart of the natural man comes deceit. Through the gospel we become people of integrity. It says, Out of the gospel come, out of the, the natural heart comes evil thoughts. And because of the gospel we become people who, who think and exhibit positive God centered thoughts. Out of the natural man comes sexual immorality. And because of the gospel in our lives we become people who are sexually whole and moral. Uh, out of the natural man we 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 steal and the gospel leads us to see that because god owns all we respect property see the list goes on and on but as these defilements are reversed through the gospel's work we are moved towards wholeness and restoration you see the person described in verse 21 of mark chapter 7 is a depersonalized person Someone who's evil and sexually immoral and a thief who's a murderer and adulterer, a coveter, a a wicked, deceitful, sensual person, an envious slanderer, a prideful fool. That person's humanity is being ruined by sin. 
And yet in Christ, we are walking towards wholeness. I said a moment ago, Christians are people becoming whole again. And so as we combat sin, we grow in grace in Christ likeness which is the beautiful picture of the gospel that Jesus takes us from the, 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 the Mark chapter seven, verse 21 person. He takes us from that person and begins to walk us into wholeness. Now the mistake is thinking that he moves us from A to B all in one move. The reality is that he walks us from the Mark seven twenty one person to wholeness in Christ over a process, over a period of time. As we combat sin, we grow in grace and Christ-likeness. Well, the final application question I'll leave you with is this. Are these things true of me? We need to grapple with this. Am I surrendering to God's will? Am I having faith in God? Am I praying? Am I watching over? Am I guarding my heart? Are these things true of me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for showing us, oh God, what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you bear with us as we grow. That Lord, there are, there are Christians among us who are like babies. They're just trying to figure out how to get the fork into their mouth so that they can eat. And there are others among us, Lord, who are dealing with, with, with incredibly difficult things because you have matured them into gospel maturity. And Lord, we need each other. But more than that, God, we need you because we are learning you Lord, we want to be people wholly surrendered to your will. We want to be people of great faith. We want to be people of prayer. God, we want to be people who are, who are, who are vigilantly guarding our hearts against sin. God, I pray that those under the sound of my voice in this room and, and, and through this video, or this audio recording, I pray, Lord, that our prayer together is that we want to be people being made whole again because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been good to be together. It's been good to be together under the word. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.